the spirit of the age. Uh, from, this is part one, and uh, we're going to start off with uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. But uh, we're going to be doing, treating the spirit of the age over the next three, or this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following one. Now, the term spirit of, of the age was a common term, I think, in years past. It was also known as the spirit of the world, the course of this world. And this is where the world is at the moment, at present. This is the, the, not only where it is, but this is the direction in which it is, it is heading toward. Unfortunately, most of the people today, even many of those who are inside the church, are going in this direction and they don't even know it. Following a, they're following a different Jesus to the one that we find so clearly described in the Bible. So in these next three weeks, this will be our, our main topic. Uh, it is controversial and uh, I will probably lose some of you by the second or third Sunday because this is too much. Uh, I can understand that. But today we present the main ideas. Next week, how it affects family and education. And lastly, we will look at the very hot topic of environmentalism. Don't mm. go there. Simba, Simba, you must not go there. Okay. All right. So, this is the text that we read. And uh, just, it's, it's, it's one of the, the great passages in the Bible, you have to admit. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit, the spirit, what spirit? Not the Holy Spirit, but this is the spirit of the age, the spirit who is now and work in those who are disobedient. But let's not be so, so condemning of them. Let's not, you know, sort of, we are better than you type of thing. This is not what he says. This is all of us also lived among them. That's the problem. At one time, we were gratifying the cravings of flesh. We were following its desires and thoughts. We were deserving of wrath. That was our condition. But what happened? God's love broke through because of his great love for us. God, in his rich mercy made us alive in Christ. Made us alive when we were dead. I want you to notice something. I, I was, because I was starting to... to I was going to... I had to change my talk that I had been preparing all week because I started saying society is sick. That there is an illness in our society. But that is not the language from the Bible. The Bible actually calls it dead. And, and, and as far as I know, and as far as you probably witness, death is a little bit more serious than just being sick. And that's the language of the Apostle Paul. 
And we can see that all of Western society is not well. There are disturbing symptoms that need addressing. In fact, been sick, it's been mortally wounded for a long time. And because it's dead, um, just simply wishing it, was, it will get better, it's just simply rise again, just wishing it, it's not going to happen. But we're also part of that, the Bible says. But Dr. Paul doesn't say that we're sick. He says we're dead. And our leaders and our experts are always coming up with different ways to address the problem. And then come election time, they, each of them come with different solutions to sway the rest of the population so that can at least vote for them and give them another three years to have another go. And because we live in this democratic process... Their hold on power is very, very tenuous. There are the demonstrations, there are, uh, you know, the talk heads on on the media and everything else. They they tend to start to feed what they think is information, but many times it's simply misinformation with the purpose of diverting us from the real issues. Because in the, in the media, there is, we're, there is an explosion of information that is out there. But there is also an explosion of misinformation. How do we know what is true and what is not? How do we know that what is fact and what is not? We desperately, desperately need God's wisdom in order to understand the times in which we live. And this is where there's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament. Um, it was a crucial time when David, he was banished by Saul. He was escaping. He was trying to run away. And slowly but surely, all these different fighters started to gather around him, people that, all these people who, who liked David and, and these will be the people that he would trust once he would be king. And among those who joined him were the men from Issachar. Uh, and this is what they were known for. It it's, talks about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, and this is from the New Living Translation. This is what it says. It says, from the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Now, the other people who are are there who are described... They are known for their fighting prowess. They were valiant soldiers, good fighters. But these men were not known for their fighting prowess. What were they known for? They were wise. They understood the the signs of the times. Now, in order for us not to surrender to the spirit of the age, we also need to understand what is happening. 
we are going to stay in the fight and to fight courage. We have to think, deeply think. We have to be wise. Not to retreat, but to engage in a wise manner the world in which we live. Notice, have you noticed, you have to have noticed that in these changing times, in simply one generation, one generation, how things have changed so quickly. Radically. We have the transform how popular culture thinks about sexuality, about the family, about gender and its roles, about marriage, about abortion, euthanasia, pornography, Australian history, national holidays. That's one's coming up at the end of this month. Free speech, globalism, education, environmentalism, psychology, religious freedom. All of these areas, it's, it's, it's so vast. How did we get there? Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of history and then I'm going to try and join this stuff, the dots. So you need, to, you need to follow me through this process. Some of you know this stuff already through school and uni and, and your studies, but uh, I'm going to repeat it anyway. So some history. Uh, we could go way back, for, but for our purposes, we're just going to stick to modern history. Now, modernity is a 200-year period called the Enlightenment in which human reason was held to be the sole arbiter of all truth. Human reason, the age of enlightenment. It started in the year 1789. What happened in 1789? Well, it was the demise of the French crown and the Catholic Church as because the crown and the church used to be together in power. But then some revolutionaries in France, they storm the Bastille prison in, in Paris. Now, these uh, revolutionaries then proceeded to place a bust of the goddess Reason on the altar of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Yes, the very one that just got burnt down. The cult of reason was France's first established state-sponsored atheistic religion intended as a replacement for Catholicism during the French Revolution. Now, the cult, they say, only lasted for about a year, but its influence certainly continued way beyond that. It appeared, it appeared that now rationalism, reason, had triumphed over so-called religious superstition, belief in the supernatural or God. Let's also point out that by this stage, the Protestant Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Swingley and all of those, had been running for more than 250 years by this stage. What's more, that in that particular context in the late 1700s, God had, used, had already used great men like Jonathan Edwards 
and Whitfield and Wesley during the Great Awakening. Uh, and the Great Awakening was indeed a great time. It was this, this the, the, the religious fervor was everywhere, and it seemed that the society as a whole was being transformed in England and in America as many millions of people came to faith in a very powerful way. Society's impact in, in legislation, in, 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 in the freedoms, in how societies were being set up and, and people of influence. Yet by 1789, the, the momentum of the Great Awakening was starting to die out. And modernism began to take over from then on. There was scepticism of all things spiritual. And uh, scepticism was considered to be a sign of true intelligence. If you want to be intelligent, you have to be a sceptic of just about everything. So reason became the sole measure of reality and human progress. And we saw indeed great advances in the sciences, in the arts, in music. There was an explosion during the age of the Enlightenment and all these things. Tremendous advances. Obviously, later on, we, we saw the invention of the steam engine, which revolutionised and, and brought in the, the start of the Industrial Age. We also, of course, had the appearance of men in the 1800s who would influence society is my other ways. As they say, the pen is mightier than the sword. Uh, this was certainly the case with Charles Darwin and evolution, Karl Marx and socialism, Sigmund Freud with psychology. All of these men were, were atheists. They were naturalists who relied on, on reason alone and, and they deeply challenged the Christian doctrine, the Christian dogma of the day. The dogma that said that the universe is not eternal. It did not create itself. But the universe is here because God created it. But God was removed. He was declared irrelevant for most of them. Unfortunately, most Christian scholars, rather than stand for the truth, and by Christian scholars I mean those uh, theologians and, and, and uh, influential pastors and leaders of the day, denominational leaders, rather than stand for truth, they started to absorb their ideas and infect the church and the seminaries that beat the pastors and leaders of the churches. So early 20th century, at the turn of the last century, many liberal theologians appeared on the scene. Uh, it was, a lot of it was focused in Germany, but certainly around the world as well. There was, of course, textual criticism. Text, what was textual criticism? It, it, it was actually more like textual scepticism of the Bible as the living word of God. Uh, this led to a reinterpreting 
the Word of God, a, a denial of the supernatural, the miracles, the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ. It is exactly the same, the same thing that Satan, the snake, when he tempted Eve, what were his words? Did God really say? So doubt started to come in about what God had said in his living word. But of course, God's work doesn't stop. Despite this scepticism, despite whatever the the temperature or the atmosphere and who's like, God continues to work. And God had his remnant of mighty men who stood up for truth and pushed for missionary endeavour overseas like never before. There were men like Charles Spurgeon who fought courageously uh, in London and then, but not only that, but then he sent his men throughout the world to plant churches and if, and if, you, were, if you were to visit some of these churches, they're actually, if you follow the railway line from, from the centre of Sydney down the railway line, a lot of these churches were actually planted by disciples of Charles Spurgeon at the turn of the last century. The Baptist churches they are. Um, there was David Livingstone who went to, to Africa. Hudson Taylor who went to China. Adoniram Judson who went to Burma. William Carey to India and countless others. These are just some of the names that we know well. So God was going to do a mighty thing. So if God was going to be rejected in Europe, he was just going to send his people out throughout the world. Somebody said that the Holy Spirit, he says, is not like the candle. There was a great essay actually written many years ago by F.W. Borum. He says, it's not like the, the Holy Spirit's candle is snuffed out like a candle, like the fire of the Holy Spirit is snuffed out like a candle. He said, the Holy Spirit's more like a bird. You push him out, he's just going to move and sing his song somewhere else. And this was the great explosion of evangelism in, in Africa, in Asia. And, and God's Spirit was moving. Now, there was, of course, the expectation of that the success of modernism, of reason, of, of secularism, that, that momentum that, that, that was seen in the 19th and the 20th century would herald a golden age in the 21st century that we find ourselves in. But of course, they were wrong. The overconfidence in human reason, in human reason alone, was dealt a huge blow with two world wars and a hundred million lives that were lost. And so through the 60s and the 70s, some of you were alive those days. You had long hair and used to do all sorts of funny things. You probably can't remember them. Something else was emerging, wasn't it? There was an 
Because what happened is that reason and rationalism left this uh, vacuum, the spiritual vacuum. And you know what happens with vacuums? They tend to get filled pretty quickly. They start sucking everything else in. That vacuum was created by atheism. Don Carson said, he said, he said, and I quote, he says, the irony is delicious. The modernity which has arrogantly insisted that human reason is the final arbiter of truth has spawned a stepchild that has arisen to slay it. I like, <laughs> I like the colourful language that he used. So how did this happen? Well, there was a collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989 which symbolised uh, in many ways the end of the age of reason, of modernism, of materialism, of atheistic circular Marxism and heralded uh, the age of postmodernism. Now in postmodernism there is no absolute objective truth. There is no big story. Everything is deconstructed, has to be reinterpreted, even history. If everything is deconstructed, you have to ask the question, where does that lead civilization or our culture? But as we have it, uh, things are moving so quickly now that uh, the, the language is even changing, so much so that even postmodernism is being morphed into what is known as post-secularism. It's similar to postmodernism, but different again. And what is happening? Well, what we are seeing today is the return of paganism. So we go back to the biblical descriptions, the return of paganism. So while it looked like atheism and the new atheism, um, the new atheism was, is that which Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others, they, they're called sort of the, the prophets of, of atheism. So while it looked like atheism and new atheism was gaining, it is actually being replaced by polytheism. Polytheism means many gods. And pantheism, pantheism is everything, word, God. God's word, God's word, written word and the living word, the logos, is replaced by, is replaced by, by what? It is replaced by myth, mythos. Uh, and so, whereas, like I said before, we used to send missionaries into, into Asia, into the East, now it is being reversed. What happened in the 60s is that there's a whole series of Indian gurus that made their mark on the student population in America and in other parts of the world and in Europe. The Beatles travelled to India and met with the Maharishi and popular culture was introduced to the wisdom of the East. Remember the words of George Harrison? Hare Krishna, you know? Hare Krishna. Well, that was, yeah, that was part of that. In 2009... Newsweek magazine announced that, and this is what they said, we're all Hindus now. 
A magazine in the US said, we are all Hindus now, meaning that the Western soul had been profoundly altered by Eastern influence, Eastern religion. Now, to some of the people who, who, like the men of Issachar, they recognised the times, they actually spoke about this, this is what is happening, this is what is going to happen. And one of the, the powerful writers who, he punched pretty hard, his name was Francis Schaeffer, and he actually predicted the massive invasion of Eastern spirituality into the West. And he said, he said this, pantheism will be, present, will be pressed as the only answer to ecological problems and will be one more influence in the West becoming increasingly Eastern in its thinking. How is it different to the Bible story? Well, Hinduism, for example, is not interested in a creation story. So there is ultimately no meaning to life. It is up to us. We create meaning ourselves. Remember what the serpent said to Eve? You will be like God. It's by God. Religion is replaced by spiritualism. So, so in the past, uh, if you went on the streets and tried to do some evangelism or you started a, religion, a, a discussion, evangelistic discussion, you might ask the person, are you religious? And they will answer, no, I'm not religious and you therefore engage. Say, Why not? Now they will answer, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. They will say, I am spiritual. So there is this resurging interest in the pagan lifestyle. Pagan comes from the Latin paganus, which means of the earth. That's what pagan means. We're seeing, and this is going to be a controversial one, it's like, oh no, young and old getting tattoos. Guess where that comes from? people delving into mythical, magical culture. There's an interest in the gods of the, uh, you know, the Thors, Northern Europeans. There's an interest in, in the uh, Indian mythology, for example, the native Indians. In the Nevada desert, for example, now in, in America, uh, in the Nevada desert, there's the Burning Man Festival where thousands gather to worship who? They worship Papa Satan. It's a festival of debauchery. And I think uh, you know what that's about. None of these just simply happened overnight. Um, there were many say, architects, uh, like I said before, the pen is mightier than the ideas, you see. The, the ideas are very powerful. And, and so there, there were many architects of this modern spirituality, names that you might or might not have heard of, Aldous Huxley and Joseph Campbell. They were converts to Hinduism. Okay, 
Paul, I don't care, blah, blah, blah. Well, let me join some dots. Campbell was mentor to George Lucas and an inspiration to the Star Wars movies. Now, I've joined some dots. Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Jedi, explains to young Luke Skywalker in language similar to a priest to a young uh, disciple. The force, he says, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us. It penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. It is all-powerful and controls everything. End of quote. From James Cameron's um, avatar, and the word avatar is a Hindu word as well, which means incarnation. The word incarnation should already be ringing some bells with the Christian faith. You see, because everything in paganism is, a, is an imitation of the Christian faith, you see. It's, it's linked. In the movie Avatar, and this is a quote from the movie. I try and understand this deep connection that people have with the forest. She talks about a network of energy that flows through all living things. She says all energy is only borrowed and one day you have to give it back. End of quote. There was also a line, another line from, um, from Star Wars in one of the earlier movies. Just let yourself go, Luke. Just let yourself go. Just close your eyes. Just think on the force. Right? I'm just paraphrasing here. So there he is. He has to hit this target. He's flying this supersonic aircraft thing. Just close your eyes and feel the force and you're going to hit your target. Now, if I, if I was teaching my son Dylan how to drive and I said to him, Dylan, <laughs> just close your eyes <laughs> and you're going to hit the target. I don't know what target it is, <laughs> but you're going to do it. Try it when you're doing your driving test. It's fantastic. So there are only two options. And a lot of my, a lot of my material in, in these three weeks is, is, uh, is from quite a few books that um, Dr. Peter Jones wrote. And if you want to borrow them, um, I can make them available to you. Um, Dr. Peter Jones actually... Believe it or not, he actually went to school with John Lennon in, the, uh, in England for quite a few years together and obviously went in very, very different directions later on. And they've had their impact in, on society, I think, in very different ways. So the Apostle Paul gives us, also gives us the definition of a pagan He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he says, a pagan is someone who has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So you you, you know what is true, but you prefer the lie. So you exchange 
the truth of God, something that you know to be true and you preferred the lie, even though you know it's a lie. You prefer the lie. Not only that, but then worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, this is the very, very key verse in these and the options that are available to mankind. It's sort of the, the, the simplest explanation of the spiritual conflict that you and I find ourselves in. And yes, it started in the Garden of Eden. It continued, certainly in Paul's day, and we see it in ours. It is the same story. This is the key verse because I think in our study you have to all lays out this age-old conflict between two opposing views. So you have two options. The worship, the first option is the, the worship and the service of creation. Option two, the worship and service of the creator. These two notions are opposites. They head in different Directions, they, they cannot be blended together. One is truth, the other one is a counterfeit lie. Now the words worship and serve show that pagans are indeed spiritual. So in this sense, everybody is spiritual. Most people are sincere and dedicated to something that they Believe in, even though deep in the heart they might know it's a lie. But as Billy Graham said, used to say, you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. So if we worship and serve anything other than God, the only creator, the only redeemer, we are pagans, whether we like the term or not, or whether you're offended by the term or not. World follows then logically that there are only two possible religions, that all of the religions of the world are morphed into two options. The first one is two worldviews. So the first one is oneism or monism. To represent God and the, the rest of reality, monism or oneism draws one inclusive circle. So, in this circle, everything is there. The galaxies, there's us, there are trees, there are rocks, there are seas and rivers, there's the air, animals, wind. And there's God, just a little, there's God. It's inside the circle, you see. Everything is part of the one. The worship of creation grants to all created forms the same divine quality. If everything in creation can be worshipped, then everything must share the divine nature. Everything is one. Now, in the Disney movie Lion King, everything in the universe is part of this mass of energy. There is no creator swallows a the circle of life, there's that word, the circle of life swallows up even God. And uh, 
This is a, a quote from Mufasa. All right? This is a quote from Mufasa. You probably know it. When we die, our bodies become the grass. And the antelope eat the grass, and so we are all connected in the great circle of life. Hmm, Paul, but doesn't the Bible talk about dust to dust, ashes to ashes? Isn't that what you say in the funerals? And Hmm, hold on. See how it sounds very similar? Let me... We read in our, in starting our service this morning, we read from Isaiah chapter 40, right? And the Apostle Peter actually quotes Isaiah 40 in chapter 1, verse 24, 1 Peter. Now, in quoting Isaiah, this is what Peter says. All people are grass. No, is that what he says? Like, oh, well done. Well done. You're growing in wisdom, George. Yeah, you're getting it. Well done. Doesn't say people are grass. All people are like grass. And all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Remember that in oneism, the universe is forever. But in the Christian faith, only God is forever. He is eternal. In oneism, all the answers and resources to life reside in the universe of which we are part. This is where we find all the answers. We need, what we need to do then is to tap into the resources of the universe of which we are part. So the goal in both Buddhism and in Hinduism is, to, is, a, is a reabsorption in the one, whether it's Brahman in Hinduism or whether it's Nirvana. And how is this done? This is done through meditation and yoga, where you recognize through the exercise of yoga, you recognize the ultimate oneness and unity of all things. Where distinctions, there's no distinctions, distinctions are merely illusions. So in Buddhism, the ultimate goal is pure consciousness. How do you get pure consciousness? By going inside and by eliminating self altogether. The annihilation of the self and absorption into the whole. You confused yet? Yeah. In one... In oneism, there is no distinction between the creator and his creation. So the problem can't be sin and the solution cannot be redemption. When you go within, notions like right and wrong, guilt and shame, your conscience, good or bad, they disappear. Our problem, the Bible says that we're alienated from God. Our problem in oneism is not being alienated from God. Our problem is being alienated from the self. In fact, pagan spirituality produces a temporary counterfeit euphoria of your own virtual redemption. If you go deep enough, you experience your own redemption. 
And the worth of individual persons created in the image of God is the That's a very big concept in the Bible, the Imago Dei. Or in one ism, the cockroach that you're about to step on as you walk into your kitchen is worth just as much as you do. Can you see the implications here? In yoga, your individuality is transcended and absorbed into the universal divinity. What is sad, what is troublesome to me, is that many Christians are into yoga because it has been packaged as a neutral, non-religious, one spirituality fits all fitness program for body, mind and soul. Have I joined the dots enough for you yet? In the US, there are churches, Christian churches, that run yoga classes. There is holy yoga. There is Yahweh yoga. Which is simply syncretism of the Christian faith with mystic religion, Hinduism, Buddhism. A few years ago, Rick Warren's church, uh, Saddleback Church, launched his Daniel plan. You might have heard about his Daniel plan to help his congregation develop healthier lifestyles through exercise and meditation. Now, as he introduced his program, he had three renowned doctors, all of whom are renowned Eastern mystics. So, apart from being medical doctors, they are also into mysticism. Not only that, but Rick then proceeded to recommend their books to the rest of his congregation. Let's just recall for a moment that while teaching, Jesus was teaching us to pray. While he was teaching us to pray, Jesus specifically warned us not to do so as the pagans did. Where is that in the Bible, Paul? Well, it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. If you want to find it. Our last point is twoism. Obviously, we will be saying more about that in the following weeks. To represent God and the rest of reality, twoism draws Two circles. There's God and creation. One of the... Uh, uh, in um, Myanmar, I, I lectured on, uh, on creation, Genesis 1 to 3, and I just threw some figures out there that uh, there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy alone, 100 billion stars. And out there, just with the observable eye, there are a hundred billion galaxies. So you start to lose the, the zeros, right? The, you cannot possibly imagine how many planets and suns and everything is out there, right? And I said to them, you think that's big? God is bigger because he created it all. 
you get lost in the, the greatness of God. And that's just from the, seeing, the things that we can see. Observable. His creation. The, so this smaller circle represents everything except God because God is beyond that. Worship of the Creator implies that reality is divided into two types of being, the transcended, the uncreated, creator, and then creation, and all the creatures in creation are in a separate circle. Christians do not believe that God is his creation. God has no beginning. Creation did. God and the universe are distinct, like a watch and a watchmaker, or in biblical language, like the potter and, and the clay. The great thing, the amazing thing, is that in the incarnation, guess what happened? There was a point of connection. This is the marvellous thing about the incarnation, that God became the clay in Jesus Christ. That is remarkable. He became one of us and died in our place in order to redeem us to the Father. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because we are too precious to God. He didn't come to redeem the cockroaches. He came to redeem mankind who was made in his image. This is why the Bible warns us not to worship his creation. Remember to worship and serve only the creator. Remember, the devil's lies address, they address real human needs. There are human needs and the devil has his counterfeit solutions, right? To human sickness. But ultimate healing, in fact, resurrection, raising us up from the dead, is not found by tapping into our inner self or into nature or into the the bigger whole. But it resides in the creator who is outside of us, outside of his creation, and that is our God. This is the creator who, rather than just leading us to our perils and misery, he continually nudges us as he's doing now. He continually nudges us. Come on. Let me show you what I can do. Let me lift you up from the mire. He's calling us to what? In Ephesians 5, just three chapters after our first text. Ephesians 5, 14 to 16. Wake up, sleeper. world is asleep, right? Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't ever say that God didn't warn you, right? He points to the problem He offers the solution, the ultimate redemption through Christ our Lord. In the midst 
of what is happening, there is only one place that we can find hope and that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. May God bless us. Amen.